God Conversations with Tanya Harris. So, let me ask you that question. What does God tell me? <laughs> well, you know, thunder, lightning. <laughs> Mother Teresa, someone asked her, when does God speak to you? And she said, whenever he wants. So essentially, the, the Bible is a, a collection of God Conversations, if you like. I had a vision of a car accident, and I'm sitting on the couch thinking, why have I just seen this? How could I know if God was speaking to me? How could I know that that Jesus said we'd recognize his voice. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. Money, sex and power are some of the most powerful agents in the world. Any one of them can take down presidents and pastors, politicians and kings. History is littered with stories of people who've been able to conquer nations, but not their own lives. So how does God call us to handle them? Hi, and welcome to episode 46 of the God Conversations podcast. My name is Tanya Harris, and I'm a pastor, speaker, and founder of this ministry that equips you to recognize and respond to God's voice. This week on God Conversations, we're looking at the topic, hot to handle. How do we handle these very powerful areas of life and how although these things can be used for evil, they can also be used for great good. I want to be honest with you. Traveling around the world, I get to hear a lot of stories and they're not all good. Many of them involve abuse and hurt at the hands of leaders who haven't handled one of these three areas, money, sex and power. Of course, it's not just leaders who are susceptible to these three things, but leaders tend to have a greater ability to inflict damage just because they're leading and influencing more people. These three areas, you know, can be challenging to talk about, but they're areas that God talks about. So we need to as well. We need to confront these things. And I want to encourage you as you're listening today, we're not about pointing the finger at other people. We're really trying to tune in to what God is saying to us. What is God speaking to me about in these three areas that can be so powerful for good and for evil? Some of you might have read my book and there's a story right at the beginning that talks about how God spoke to me about this area of money. It happened really early on in my journey of hearing God's voice. And at the time, actually, it was pretty shocking. But it came at a time when I was super conscious that God was doing a kind of a stock take of my life. He was going through the different areas. And the heart behind it was to really teach me that God is first and that when we put these things um, in the center of our lives as the priority, that then they, we give them power to then direct and guide us and then to damage other people as a result. I'm so thankful as I look back now that God did that and he continues to do that. He continues to put his hand on those areas. So I encourage you to be open to what God may speak to you about through this message. And since we're talking about finances, I just want to say thank you to those listeners and supporters who've recently become partners in the Ministry of God Conversations. In the last six months or so, we've seen a real increase in financial support from individuals who feel really called to take the message further, to take on this ministry and to really support it and see it go places. We get testimony after testimony of people whose lives have been touched and changed. Thousands of people are going to reap the benefit of being set free to hear God's voice for themselves. So thank you to those wonderful partners who have been such a great support. Now onto the show. How do we handle money, sex and power? 
So we know that God is a God of good gifts and that he has abundant, joyful life available to each one of us. But the truth is our selfishness tends to get in the way and what is meant for good actually gets turned around. So let's talk about these hot issues. Firstly, we need to understand money, sex and power are morally neutral. In and of themselves, they're not good or bad. They are agents of power, but they can be used for good or bad. So, for example, money itself is not evil. It can be used for good things. It can be used to feed the hungry, but it can also be used to fund war and to facilitate crime. Power can be seen in a similar way. It can be used to build an organisation, a church or a country, so that people can have jobs, go to places of worship and live in safe places. But it can also be used for bad things. It can be used to coerce people to evil, to manipulate and to abuse. And finally, sex can also be used for good, to bring people closer together, to unite them in love as two become one. But it can also be used as a weapon of abuse and destruction. So these things in and of themselves are not bad or good. What makes them so is how we use them and the place that they take in our hearts. When they become used for selfish purposes, when they become something that we place ahead of God's purpose for our lives, that's where the problem comes. The Bible says, for example, that money isn't evil, but it's the love of money that's evil. It's the prioritising of money above God. The truth is that money, sex and power are very hot to handle. They're seductive. They have a way of worming into our hearts so that they take the place of God and become tools of evil. It's been said they make good servants, but dreadful masters. Or as the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, a person becomes a slave to whatever masters him. So how do we handle them? Well, before we look at the specifics, have a think about the big picture, how God wants us to live. He calls us to live according to the kingdom of God, not according to the kingdom of the world. But what is the kingdom of God like? What are the kingdom principles he wants us to live by? It's often said that God's kingdom is upside down. Tony Campolo called it a topsy-turvy kingdom. That means that everything in this kingdom operates in reverse. God's way of doing things is the opposite to everyone else's way. So think about how this works generally. What did Jesus say to do when you're hated? You love. When people hurt you, do good to them. When someone steals your coat from you, you give them your shirt. When people insult you, you rejoice. When you're poor, you're rich. When you want to be promoted, Be humble. And when you want to live, you die to the self. There's a pattern here. Can you see it? It's the opposite spirit every time. The opposite of what everything in us tells us to do. So when it comes to money, sex and power, how do we handle them? It means that in every case you act in the opposite spirit. You do the opposite of what the self says you should do. So when it comes to power, And the world says, use it to meet your own ends. Jesus calls us to serve, to give your power to others, to bless them, to put them first. When it comes to money and the world says, keep it for yourself, use it to make yourself look good and live indulgently, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than receive and to share what you have with those who are less fortunate around you. 
And when it comes to sex, the world says, get as much of it as you can for yourself. Jesus says to think of the other person first and to seek their benefit in covenant love. Can you see how it works? It's so easy to say, but it's actually not easy to do. In fact, it's the most difficult thing in the world because it's dying to yourself. It's putting God and others first. But that's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And it's never been easy. The cross isn't easy. But what is the result of it? It means that our sinful and selfish ways are put to death. And then we see resurrection. You want to live, Jesus said, die to yourself. Because it's when we live in Him, we're truly free from the temptations around us. We can fully enjoy those good things that God has, and then we can use them to multiply blessing for others. Then it becomes a powerful tool for good. Those hot-to-handle agents become incredible tools of blessing in our hands. They become a vehicle to change the lives of others because they're motivated by God's heart of love. When it comes to money, sex and power, it really does depend whose hands it's in. When our hands are submitted to God, everything in them becomes a tool for His glory. That's how it works. A basketball in my hands is worth about $20, but a basketball in Michael Jordan's hands is worth millions. Two fish and five loaves of bread in my hands is a couple of fish sandwiches, but two fish and five loaves of bread in God's hands will feed thousands. It depends whose hands it's in. So when it comes to handling money, sex and power, can I encourage you to consecrate your hands to God, to submit these hot to handle areas to the one who knows how to use them best, to allow God to clean your hands so that they can be used for his glory. Fire is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. When it's found in a fireplace, it brings warmth and light to your lounge room. But when it's found raging in a bushland, it can destroy homes, possessions and even lives. Money, sex and power are a lot like that. They make great servants, but terrible masters. So how do we learn to handle them? Recently, I was watching the news on TV and they were reporting on a story of how the head of a company, a wealthy man, was charged and arrested for embezzling funds. But the thing is, he was already wealthy. He didn't need to cheat. All his needs were satisfied and more. But there was something else spurring him on. Money had found a wrong place in his heart. Money has a way of doing that, doesn't it? It has a way of filling that area of the self and demanding more. How much money is enough? The business magnate Howard Hughes was asked. He said, just a little more. I remember early on in my Christian walk, God really worked in this area of my life. He called me, first of all, to give a large sum of my savings away. And then he asked me only to spend money on my needs because he would look after my wants. Well, sounds nice, but it was hard. What was he doing? Does that make him seem like a killjoy? Like, what's your problem, God? Why can't I spend money on my wants? Well, what he was doing was working in my heart to keep my priorities straight. There was a danger that I would put money first, that I would put money and self above others and ultimately above him. So he asked me to act in the opposite spirit. First of all, to give it away and then to deny myself. 
I can still remember the struggle I had to do what he said. I was living overseas at the time in a third world country in the South Pacific. The truth was there wasn't much to buy there anyway. So at first, it wasn't really a problem. I wasn't tempted in the slightest. Then during my time there, I had the opportunity to go to America for a workshop. And while I was there, I met a friend and she had these great shoes. I remember thinking, wow, like they would be perfect for me. Where did you get them? Well, she told me she bought them in Kenya, in Africa. There's no hope of finding them here. But I decided to try anyway. On one of the days I was in the US, we went to a shopping mall and I searched and searched for a pair just like them, all the while feeling desperately convicted and having this internal argument with God. I knew that he had spoken, only buy what you need, not what you want. And I didn't need the shoes. What I had was fine. But it seems so silly. Like, what's the big deal in a pair of shoes? It wasn't that much money anyway. The truth is that it wasn't much of a big deal. It wasn't really about the shoes because God was trying to do something in my heart. He was trying to get a love of money, of possessions, a love of things out of there because it was holding me back from all that God had for me. Well, the story goes, I couldn't find the shoes I wanted, no matter how hard I looked. Instead, I found this other pair, a little bit similar, but the wrong colour. And you know what? They didn't even fit. But by this stage, I was so determined to silence God's voice in my heart that I bought them anyway. Then I went back home to my home in the South Pacific where I was working. I felt so bad about these shoes that I'd bought that I stuck them in the back of the wardrobe. Well, two days later, I received a parcel from a friend. She was living in the outback of Australia in a a small town there. And I remember opening the parcel thinking, why has she sent me a parcel? It wasn't my birthday. It wasn't Christmas. And then I opened up the parcel and I couldn't believe it because there was the exact same shoes I'd seen on my friend in the US, the same ones she had bought in Kenya. I'm like... How on earth did that happen? I immediately rang my friend in Australia. Why did you buy them? And where did you find them anyway? She said she'd been walking along the shops in her small town and she'd seen these shoes in the window, but she kept walking. But as she did, she heard the Holy Spirit say, buy those shoes for Tanya. God is not a killjoy. He wants to give us gifts. He wants us to be able to use our money well. But he's also committed to getting the love of money out of our hearts. He wants us to put him first. And that means that sometimes he'll say, no, don't spend your money here. Don't use your money on yourself. Give it away. We have to realise that this isn't always easy. There's going to be some resistance. It's a bit like when you go to the gym and you start lifting weights for the first time. It's painful. Your muscles scream back at you, stop what you're doing. But if you keep going and you keep pushing through, your muscles adjust. And it's a bit like that with giving. We need to practice generosity. We need to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit as he works to prioritise what's important in our lives. We need to give, even if it starts small. We need to give what we can. We need to give regularly because in the kingdom of God, it's more blessed to give than receive. 
I can still remember a good friend's wedding, the beautiful white dress, the classical music playing as she walked down the aisle and met the handsome suited man at the altar. It was an incredibly special day. But it was only about two years later that I received a phone call. My friend was getting a divorce. I was horrified. So soon after the wedding, then she began to tell me that her husband had a sex addiction. He was addicted to pornography and to phone sex, and it was at its peak when she was pregnant with her first child. They had tried counselling, but it had failed, and now they were just another heartless statistic. It's an incredibly sad story, but it's not an isolated one. Even in my own friendship circle, I've heard it happening far too many times. Sex is a powerful gift. It's a beautiful expression of intimacy and oneness, and it works together to bind two people together in a wonderful way. But at the same time, sex is an area of life that is very hot to handle. When it's not submitted to God, it causes devastation. In this case, it broke up a marriage and a family, and it left a young baby without a secure home. And there's plenty of other wreckage out there where sex has been used to abuse people in the most horrific of ways. So how does God tell us to handle sex? I was talking recently with a young woman about this topic. She's 28, has been married and then divorced and has just started a new relationship. Her and her boyfriend are asking real questions about not having sex because they're not married yet. You can't find this topic in the Bible much, can you? She asked me. And actually, it's true. There's not a lot of direct teaching in the Bible that says you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. Not a lot of specific and direct teaching. It's there, but it certainly doesn't feature prominently. In fact, the Bible is full of stories about people getting it terribly wrong, about using rape as a weapon of war, about the development of polygamy that comes as a result of increasing sin and about sex slavery. So while we don't see a lot of direct teaching on sex, what we do see is a deep theological foundation for relationships. The idea that two become one in marriage, both spiritually and physically, it's right there at the beginning of God's perfect creation. Then we read in the New Testament about Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians, and here we see the focus on sex is always on the other person. Sex is not primarily about getting pleasure for myself. It's about loving someone else. It's about expressing my commitment to them and giving myself to them. The Apostle Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 7, The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his body, but yields it to his wife. This kind of teaching is even more radical when we read it against the backdrop of the first century Greco-Roman world. Back then, wives were seen as playthings, as tools for the pleasure of the man. The idea that the husband wouldn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife was radically countercultural. It's such a beautiful picture of self-giving, of radical selfless love, of thinking of the other person first. And then the beautiful thing is that in giving that we receive. That's why today's idea of sex is so devastating. The normal pattern of things is that it's sex on the third date, although even that is changing. 
online dating has made it almost so that it's sex on the first date now. And what that means is that sex is no longer about love. It's no longer about the other person. It's centred on the self and what I can get out of it. So God calls us to move in the opposite spirit. In this topsy-turvy kingdom, he talks about how to handle these powerful areas of life. And he calls us to resist our selfish tendencies, to use sex as a tool for myself rather than for others. So where the world says, get as much as you can for your own pleasure, God says, use it in the place of covenant love, where it's directed towards the one we've chosen to be with. Use it as a way of expressing oneness, the beauty of God bringing two people together in commitment, where each person is seeking the good of the other. This is the heart of God, and it's in that place that sex can be enjoyed for all that God created it to be. It's been said that success can test a person's character even more effectively than failure. What do we do with power? History is littered with stories where people have abused their power. Dictatorial regimes, wars and crimes have all come about because people haven't used their power well. How does God call us to handle the power we've been given? We need power. We need power in every area of our lives. We need power over ourselves. We need power to make things happen. And we need power to make a difference in the world. But there is a good use of power and a bad use of power. Hitler was an incredibly powerful person. He was a talented and gifted leader who mobilised an entire team of people to do his bidding against the Allies and to commit actions that impacted millions of people's lives. But of course, it was a power that was used to serve a dreadful evil. God wants us to use our power, to use what we've been given our positions and our places of authority for good. So back to the question we've been asking all week, how do we handle power? Let's think about God's example first. He's powerful. And we see this especially throughout the Old Testament. We see him parting the ocean for the Israelites. And we see him performing wonderful miracles through the prophets. Then in the New Testament, Jesus was seen to be so powerful that he calmed the ocean, such that those who witnessed it were terrified. The truth is that the God of the Bible is the creator. So he has power and omnipotence over all of his creation. But now against that backdrop, Think about what Jesus did, remembering that he's the perfect image of the invisible God, the manifest glory of God, the ultimate representation of God's nature. And think of what Jesus did with his power. First of all, he came as a baby. A baby is the greatest symbol of helplessness. Babies can do nothing. They must be fed, they must be clothed and cleaned. They can't even lift their heads up without assistance. Yet Jesus came as a baby. And it wasn't a baby in a palace. It was a baby born to a young, unknown couple, tucked away in the obscure town of Bethlehem. Then think about later when Jesus had grown up and was just about to commence his ministry. He's led into the desert by the Holy Spirit, and he experiences a showdown of power with the other powerful being in existence, Satan. Satan comes to him and says, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. I will give you all the power on earth 
if you bow down, if you throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple. In other words, if you display a feat of power that acknowledges me. And what does Jesus do? He refuses. He reminds Satan that he would worship the Lord only. He would always choose God's ways above Satan's. So what are God's ways? What was the pinnacle of Jesus's ministry, his entire mission? It was to die. And it was to die on a Roman cross, the ultimate, the most humiliating shame of all. This act was a complete divesting of power. We see Jesus hanging there, bloodied, beaten, and humiliated at the mercy of Roman soldiers who repeatedly hit him, cursed him, and mocked him. He was the creator, the image of the invisible God, the one who held the universe together, and he could have called legions of angels to rescue him. He had all the power of the earth at his disposal, yet he chose to hang there at the mercy of wretched humanity. He gave up his power in favour of self-sacrificial love. God was saying, my power is great, but watch how I use it. Watch how I can relinquish it to show you the power of my love. My love is the greatest force on the earth. What's going on here? God's showing us how to handle power. He's saying, if you want to be powerful, if you want to make a difference in God's kingdom, the way you handle power is that you serve. You release it so that others may live. It's not wrong to be powerful. Jesus was still incredibly powerful on the earth. Think about the mighty miracles he performed. Think about the crowds that he was influencing and leading. He's not saying it's wrong to have high positions, to have places of authority. But what he's saying is we need to use our power carefully. This is what he tried to teach his disciples. So when James and John ask him if they could sit beside him at his throne in heaven, if they can rule with him, the story is told in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 40. What does Jesus say in response to them? He says this, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And he also demonstrated what that looked like when he was teaching his disciples. Where do we find him? He's the rabbi, the master, and yet we see him washing the feet of his students. He's stooping so low that he's performing the mundane task of a servant. He's choosing God's ways above the world's ways. He's teaching his disciples, this is how I want you to use your power. I want you to use it to bless others. Every time you have someone in your charge, every time you're leading a subordinate, think of yourself as a servant. Ask, how can I use my power to build them up? How can I release them into God's purpose for their lives? How can I love and serve in this situation? How can I treat them as Jesus would? We're called to follow his example. Let me finish with this scripture from Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the example we're all called to follow. 
Thanks so much for listening today. We've been talking a lot about money, sex and power and how to best handle them, how to operate in the opposite spirit so that we put others first and we keep God at the centre of our hearts. Next time we're going to talk about the areas of life that are not normally so hot to handle, but how they can become so. The truth is God wants to set us free from anything that slows us down, anything that doesn't have its rightful place. Have you ever had a dream that's left you wondering, where did that come from? The vivid scenes you woke up with linger a bit longer than normal. They touch your spirit and they seem relevant, though you're not quite sure how. We know that God speaks, but what we don't often know is that one of His most common methods of speaking is in dreams. I speak in a dream or a vision of the night, He says in the book of Numbers. The problem is, we don't always recognise it. We don't know if it's God, and because dreams often speak a symbolic language, we don't always know what it means. The Awaken Your Dreams CD pack is designed to give you a comprehensive teaching on this creative form of God's communication. Delivered as a seminar in countries all over the world, the three-part series will take you through the biblical basis for God speaking in this way. It will give you an easy-to-use framework for understanding your dreams and how to interpret the symbols in them. You can purchase it online at thegodconversations.com store. The promise of Acts chapter 2, verse 17 is that by His Spirit, all God's people will be able to hear His voice through visions and dreams. God may be speaking to you in the night, and it's time to be awake to the messages He's sending. We've been looking at those three very powerful and potential masters in our lives, money, sex and power. When any one of them gets into our hearts and becomes like the God we serve instead of God himself, they can become tools that can destroy us. Our selfishness causes them to become weapons rather than gifts. So God calls us to move in the opposite spirit. Where there's temptation to love money, we're called to give. Where there's temptation to use sex for selfish purposes, we're called to love. Where there's temptation to use power for ourselves, we're called to serve. It's all about putting God first above those areas. But there's also another truth here. Anything can become too hot to handle. Anything can become masters in our lives. The goal is self-mastery, such that God is number one and nothing rivals him. And if God is number one, then nothing else has the power to become a tool of self-interest. Everything in my life submits to his purpose. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, Everything is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. Later on, the Apostle Paul uses an analogy in chapter 9. It's particularly helpful. He says life is like running in a race and we should throw off everything that hinders us. So if you could imagine on the racetrack, elite athletes are ensuring they're not wearing anything that catches the wind. In fact, their gear is made of the most incredible lightweight material so that nothing holds them back. And that's the image that Paul uses. He says to throw off anything that's extraneous, anything that blocks my way. He says it's like he beats his body into submission so that it bows to the goal, 
to the prize of winning that race. He says, I make my body like a slave. I'm the one in charge here. I'm the master of my desires and my temptations, and I choose to submit myself to the goal, the prize of which God is calling me towards. So the question becomes, what's too hot to handle for you? What is it that's getting in the way of pursuing God's purpose for your life? 100%. A friend recently told me that the Holy Spirit had convicted her about the time she spent reading magazines. It was consuming a lot of her attention and her focus. So he asked to release that. It was one of those things that was causing entanglement in her race. So she threw it off. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone should do that, but it's about listening to the Holy Spirit, about what He's convicting you of, about what He's speaking to you about. In time, my friend felt free to come back to reading magazines because it was no longer an issue. I've also heard of a church leader about a time when God asked him to give up surfing. Sounds like he's a bit of a killjoy, doesn't it? What God doesn't want us to enjoy surfing? No, it doesn't mean that. And it's certainly not a rule for everyone. But for this particular person, surfing was becoming an idol in his heart. It was becoming too important. So God wanted to set him free so that he could serve the purpose of God fully. And sure enough, in time, after it had been dealt with, he was free to go back to surfing. The trouble is with our human heart. God wants to give us gifts, but he also wants us to keep our priorities straight. He wants us not to forget that he's the giver of the gifts. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling when someone only loves you for what you give them. It doesn't feel great. They're using you for what they can get out of you. And even more than that, when it comes to God, when we worship the gifts and not the giver, it destroys us and it destroys the people around us. God wants to set us free to fully enjoy the good things He has for us on earth, to fully enjoy those those potential gifts of money, sex and power, and to use them for the purpose that they were intended for, to use them for good, to use them for His glory and for the benefit of other people. He wants us to embrace the goodness of life, but we can only do that if we keep those things out of our hearts and fill our hearts first and foremost with a worship of Him. Let me finish this topic with a proverb that's been one of my favourites through the years. It talks about the importance of mastering our lives and from there we can help and bless others. It's from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32, and it says this, Better it is to be a person who can control their anger than it is to be a soldier. Or in other words, better it is to be one with self-control, the one who masters their heart, than one who takes a city. It's so true. When we have mastery over ourselves, over our desires and temptations, then we can be the kind of person that leads a city. We can be trusted to lead other people and we can be so much more of a blessing to the many that are around us. Thanks for listening to the show today. I trust our conversation around how to handle money, sex and power has been helpful to you and you've seen how those truths reflects God's heart for your own life. Great to have you on the show today. Don't miss the next episode by subscribing on iTunes. Search for God Conversations with Tanya Harris and click subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review so others can learn to hear God's voice too. 